Good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Uh, Tech, as we often call it. Tech is kind of our educational uh, ministry here at the Parkway Church. If you're new, uh, welcome to you. Uh, Special apology. Uh, I forgot to uh, click staple on the handouts when I was printing them, and so I had to staple them by hand. And a number of them are just a mess. So I apologize if you lost the lottery and got one of the horribly stapled handouts. Uh, There are others that Carl did. Those are the good ones. Good job, Carl. Thanks for your help, brother. Uh, Let me pray, and then we will dive into our tech this morning. Father, we thank you that uh, this Lord's Day, we again, uh, in just uh, an hour and a half, we'll get to gather and sing your praises, uh, receive your word, and uh, yeah, just reflect on your glory across the whole world. And I pray now, Father, as we uh, study these biblical themes, uh, that we would magnify your grace, you would sharpen us, you would help us, you would uh, help us to rid ourselves of views of you that are false, uh, and you would, you would mold our minds, God, to be more Uh, like the image of your son, so that we uh, behold you and we see ourselves rightly. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. War. Huh, yeah, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing, except very cheesy introductions uh, to this, uh, this lesson on the biblical theme of war and peace. I told my wife I was gonna say that at the beginning. She told me I wouldn't. I just did. Uh, So every theme uh, we've gone across uh, in Scripture is unique. Is across this uh, sorry across over the course of this semester, uh, everyone is going to show us something different about uh, a new facet of the gospel, a new facet of who we are, or the story God has weaved across uh, His Word. Uh, And this morning is, I think, particularly interesting because this theme we're looking at we'll get at the very character of who God is. We will see something about the identity of God uh, and his character from uh, studying these themes of war and peace. Uh, And the primary reason I say that, and this may sound surprising, certainly in our day and age it probably is, uh, we Christians, we worship a God of war. We worship a God of war. Take a look at Exodus 15, verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So we worship a God of war. But is that all we can say about God? Is is God just, you know, some angry deity swinging a sword around uh, like we get in, you know, like Norse or or Greek mythology? No. Uh, You know this probably uh, quite well. Across a lot of the Bible, he's also called the God of peace. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, I could have picked a million verses for this. This is the one I picked. Uh, Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So is, is what's going on here, is this one of those, I know what's going on, this is one of those Old Testament, New Testament things, right? So God was really angry back in the day. He got some anger management in the intertestamental period, and now he's all about peace and love and, you know, nice, happy thoughts, right? That's, that's what's happened. Uh, well, uh, some of you uh, may be thinking that, hopefully not, uh, hate to break it to you, it is heresy. 
Uh, not a great start to your day, uh, committing heresy in your brain. So let's, let's work on that, okay? Uh, maybe some of you have heard of Marcion. I'd be curious, actually. Raise your hand if you've heard of Marcion. Marcion, okay. So, yeah, I'm seeing a couple. Okay, nice. Good job. Uh, Marcion is one of the, uh, the OG heretics. So, like, way back in the day, uh, Marcion had these ideas. Uh, or back in the day, I should be clearer. Um, early, what, 2nd century, 3rd century? I'm looking at Jared. He's our church history nerd. Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, somewhere around there. Uh, Marcion is famous for rejecting the God of the Old Testament. So Marcion, you know, he, he heard the gospel, he heard about Jesus, and he's like, that sounds great. I want to get rid of this whole Old Testament thing because that God is angry and mean, and he's all about war and wrath, and come on, we can get rid of that. So what Marcion did uh, is he kind of, he published his own Bible, which is a bold move. Usually heretics are more subtle than that, um, but Marcion wasn't. He published his own Bible where he cut out the entire Old Testament uh, and, but then he realized he had the New Testament, and there's 27 books in the New Testament, and a lot of them, ugh, a lot of them talk about wrath and God's judgment uh, and things like that. So we got to cut out some of that too. So of the 27 books he had left in the New Testament, he got down to 11, uh, and then he edited all 11 of those to get rid of parts that he thought described a God that he didn't like. So uh, I think that's a great illustration of the fact that you uh, you try to get rid of this God of war that I'm going to talk about today, and you get rid of a vast percentage of the Bible. It is all over the place. Actually, we even see it in Romans 16, verse 20. In the New Testament, Paul writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Whatever God of peace means apparently also means that he can crush things. It doesn't seem like peace to us, but uh, in the character of God, both war and peace here coexist. So we're going to kind of get a look at that uh, in our lesson this morning. God is a God of both war and peace. Uh, The Bible is just shot through with that. I remember when I was learning Hebrew, uh, there's like so many Hebrew words for destroy, uh, so like, like this word means destroy, this word means violently destroy, this word means destroy with fire, this word means destroy with no survivors. And like you're taking a vocab quiz and you're like, destroy is a pretty good guess. There's a lot of words for destroy in the Old Testament. Uh, so it's, yeah, again, just to belabor the point, uh, God, uh, the, the whole Bible is shot through with, with what we could call violence, with war and with peace. But it's important, what we're going to see, is that it's not all created equal. So there's a trajectory across the scriptures where God is warring and making peace in different ways. So, uh, for example, uh, well, not for example, by way of illustration, in World War II, when it started, uh, the American uh, military was not involved, uh, but we would, uh, we would supply arms to the allies. So we were called the arsenal of democracy. We would give, uh, give weapons and uh, finances to the allies, not to the Axis powers. We didn't like them. Uh, we weren't going to give them weapons, but we would, we would fund and support the, the, who we thought was the good guys in the war. Uh, but then, a little later, 1941, our Navy started doing what's called neutrality patrols, which don't you love politics? It's, they, weren't, they weren't neutral. Um, we would, uh, our, our ships would patrol the Atlantic, and we would tell the British where the German boats were. Like, we're not going to engage them, but we're going to tell you where they are. So we're like, not quite involved, but we're a little more involved. It's kind of a new phase of the war. 
Uh, and then, of course, uh, December 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor uh, got us involved in both the European and the Pacific theaters. So uh, there were different phases to our involvement in the war. In a similar way, we're going to see different phases of divine war and peacemaking. It's not all the same across the Bible. And one of the main reasons for that is there are two fronts in this war we're going to look at. There is the physical flesh and blood seen reality, and there is the invisible, spiritual, unseen reality. There are uh, physical enemies, and there are spiritual enemies. There's two, kind of two main battlegrounds that where the war is being fought. Uh, I think of this maybe a little bit like a chess game. You're playing chess. There's like this down-on-the-table battle. The pieces are, you know, knocking each other over. Um, and, but the, up here are like the actual people involved in the fight, right? And so they're, maybe you're playing mind games. You're trying to mess with the other guy. Uh, you're probably not fist-fighting him. Maybe, maybe that's how your chess games go. Um, but there's these kind of two fronts, these two levels to the battle, and we're going to look at both of them. Uh, one final disclaimer, uh, we're not talking about just war theory versus pacifism today. If you have questions about that, you want to talk about that, you can email me, uh, I'd love to get coffee or whatever, be happy to chat. Some of what we'll say obviously is going to relate to the, the discussions of those different uh, viewpoints, uh, but it's not going to be a main focus this morning. All right, the Bible tells the story of war and peace in six different phases. And phase number one is Eden. Eden. So the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, with perfect peace. Perfect peace. Both physical and spiritual peace is absolutely everywhere. And I think one of the clearest ways we see that is in the order of creation. So uh, if, you, if you've paid attention, when you read Genesis chapter 1, you might notice that the creation account has this beautiful symmetry to it. So days 1 through 3, God is building these, these kingdoms, he's creating these different like arenas of life, and days 4, 5, and 6, he's filling each one of those so you can kind of map them right on top of the first three days. So for example, uh, day 1, God makes the day and the night, and then day 4, God makes the sun and moon to rule the day and night. Day two, God makes the heavens and the waters. Day five, God makes the birds and the fish to fill them. Day three, God makes the dry land. Day six, God makes the animals and man in his image to fill and rule the dry land. It's just this image of perfect order, of perfect peace across the whole world. And uh, Adam and Eve, man and woman, are naked and unashamed. And God, of course, on the seventh day then rests. We see that uh, in verse 31. It's just a great image, a great picture of the peace that we had in Genesis. So look there in your notes. It says, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So you get this image of God just kind of stepping back and enjoying and marveling at this beautiful, peaceful, ordered creation that he has made. And this is important because it sets the standard for peace. Peace in Eden was more than just the absence of violence. It was this sense of perfect 
purposefulness and fulfillment and order and beauty. That's what peace really in a fully holistic sense meant. Uh, so the opposite of a fist fight with your friend is not, you know, nonviolence. The opposite is sitting down and, you know, having a burger together and laughing and joking and being happy with one another, right? So that's the image we get here. It's just this perfect, fulfilling, joyful peace. Uh, and that matters because that sets the status quo. Peace, not war, is the objective, the status quo of God's creation. We're going to see God is a warrior that is a consistent and like shot through the whole Bible theme, but he's not a warrior because warfare is a delight to him, something he just loves to do, to swing an axe around, but because it, is, uh, it, it brings peace. The war God is going to wage is war for the sake of peace. That is the objective, the goal. Uh, we don't get very far in the Bible before that perfect, beautiful, ordered peace is completely destroyed in Genesis chapter 3. And I have in your notes, I call it total war because this is both physical and spiritual war. It's obviously primarily in first spiritual, but it also leads to physical war uh, on the horizontal level. So we go to war with God. Romans 5.10 says we are enemies of God. It's warfare language. But in Genesis 4, we see, well, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve point fingers at each other, and they're, they're bickering, and they're angry at each other. In Genesis 4, their kids, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. And then by the end of Genesis 4, it's just, it's just completely spiraled out of control. You get Lamech uh, here singing a song about how he's, he's killed a kid for just a really minor offense. So it's just not a big deal, but he's so proud. He's boasting in his, uh, in his violence. Uh, eventually, things get so bad in the biblical narrative that God responds to all of this with war. He literally, literally rains down judgment at the flood, which brings us to the next phase, phase two in the Old Testament Histor what's often called the historical books. Not that Genesis, uh, you know, not that the first chapters of Genesis aren't historical, but uh, hopefully you understand what I mean there. So Old Testament history uh, has uh, multiple phases of both war and peace. We'll start just considering some of the hints of peace that God gives. So uh, when God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, he doesn't just kick them out and say, well, I'm done with you, goodbye. He actually kills an animal a sacrifice to clothe them. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. He clothes them. In response to their warfare, God initiates peace for his people in, in his response. Uh, I think one of the clearest ways we see God initiating peace in a surprising way is in Genesis chapter 9. So I have this as a bullet point on page 1 of your notes, but also I have the whole passage on the next page of your notes. Go ahead and turn there. So this is right after the flood. Again, God has literally rained down judgment on humankind in response to their con continual violence against one another, their sin against God. And it says this, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and in the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, 
I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So God has rained down judgment. But there's mercy in that, of course. He spares Noah, he spares the animals, and he makes this incredible promise after the flood. God promises here, for the sake of peace, he will go to war with himself before he brings total destruction again on the earth. He will go to war with himself before he destroys the earth completely. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, uh, that's the bow in the clouds. Often, if, you know, raised in Sunday school, this is a nice little rainbow, right? Because it's pretty and that, I don't know, God thinks, sees it and he's like, man, rainbows are really pretty. I'm, I'm going to calm down and not bring judgment. No, uh, maybe it is a rainbow. Metaphorically, though, its meaning is, uh, is much more important. It's actually, the Hebrew word there is just the word for bow, like, uh, like a bow and arrow, like a war bow. It's the Hebrew word keshet. So God is saying, I have my war bow. I'm a warrior. I'm putting my bow in the clouds. I'm laying down my arms so that when I I am tempted to bring judgment, God's not tempted. I'm just, I'm using, you know, hyperbolic language there. When I am tempted, I see the bow in the clouds and I remember I'm not going to do it until I go to war with myself because the bow is in the cloud and it is pointing at God himself. God is saying, I will take the blow. I will take the shot before I bring complete judgment on the earth. And one day when we get to Jesus, that's exactly what he will do. That's one of the main ways we see God giving these hints of peace in the Old Testament uh, books. Uh, We also see this in the sacrificial system. So God uh, offers his people who uh, are at war with him constantly, constantly sinning, constantly going against him, Uh, He also builds these practices into their religious lives for sacrifices, to to do a lot of things uh, in in a certain sense, to uh, remind them of their need for for, uh, forgiveness, of their need for uh, for God to bring judgment. God is saying, "I I will wage war on this sacrifice instead of on you. So that is, in a sense, taking your place. Um, But there are two big problems here. The first is sacrifices are costly. So peace is costly. God is showing them that, that, that peace, is, peace comes at a great cost. Blood must be spilled. An animal had to be slain. Uh, and second of all, peace is fleeting. Uh, I, I mean, you, okay, so you sacrifice the bull this morning. Oh, it's evening time. You got to kill another bull because you sinned all these times, right? Or it's, it's this time of year, so you got to do this. Or you're unclean, so you got to do this so you can be involved in the, the ceremonial uh, system here. Uh, it's, it's all the, like, peace is constantly being jeopardized. Across the Old Testament, or sorry, not across the Old Testament, but across all these, these sacrifices, you clearly get the sense, like, man, we're going to have to be killing about a thousand animals a day just to operate under God's law. And God's saying, yeah, the whole point is you can't do it. It's not going to work. Peace is fleeting. As Hebrews 10.4 even says, uh, it's ineffective. It's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. So there are these hints of peace. There's these little hints. God with the flood, with the sacrifices, he's, with Adam and Eve being clothed, he's giving little hints of peace, but it's never enough. 
Like we're never back at Eden. We never get back to the garden, this perfect holistic peace that we lost and we're longing for. And so most of the Old Testament becomes God going to war. We see that in first with God going to war with the enemies of his people. So uh, the Exodus is one of the clearest passages where God is going to war with both the flesh and blood enemies of his people and the spiritual enemies of his people. So uh, if, if you're familiar with the Exodus narrative, think of the 10 plagues, right? The 10 plagues are a, a direct assault on the gods of Egypt. It's not just God you know, doing little parlor tricks, cool little things that are interesting. They are specific, specifically designed to target the gods of the Egyptians. So, for example, I'll do the first and the last for you. Uh, you worship the Nile. The Egyptians worship the Nile. What's the first plague? God makes the Nile bleed. God's saying, I'm going to make your God bleed because I'm the true God. I am God Almighty, not the Nile you worship. The last plague, the, the slaughter of the firstborn son. The Egyptians worship their Pharaoh as their God. God saying, I'm going to kill his son. He's not a God. I'm God. He's going to war with the gods of the Egyptians. And what do, what do the Israelites do when they leave? They plunder the Egyptians. That's the Hebrew word shalal, which is used all over. If you ever read the conquest narratives in Joshua, it's, it's like, man, that, you learn that word real quick because it is all about plundering. Oh, they killed this, this city, they plundered them. They did this, they plundered them. That is what you do when you win a war. When you win a battle, you plunder your enemy, and that is what the Israelites did when they left Egypt because their God beat the gods of Egypt in battle. And that's the context. We've already looked at Exodus 15, verse 3. That's the context in which God calls himself a man of war. But that continues. In the wilderness wanderings, we see an army on the march. This is a battle march. You ever wondered why the book of Numbers is called Numbers? Like, that's pretty weird. What's this whole Numbers thing going on? Well, if you look at it, uh, the reason it's called Numbers is because God, in chapter 1, says, I want you to take all the males, 20 years old and up, uh, who are, I think he specifically says, of like a fighting age or a fighting ability, and you count them. Oh, that's weird. What do males 20 years old and up of a fighting ability, like why do we need them for? Because this is an army. This is an army. God's army is on the march. The Israelites are not just a lost people wandering in the wilderness. They are an army of God moving on the march. And we even see that in how they organize their camp. So uh, if, you, if you remember from Numbers chapter uh, 2, uh, where is the tabernacle? Where is God's presence located? Right in the middle of the camp, which is where you always put the general. That's where the military leader, that's where his tent goes, and all the other tents of the, the soldiers are around it. He's at the center of the camp. But it actually even goes further than that. In Numbers 2, verse 2, it tells us that uh, all the other tents are supposed to face the tent at the center, the tabernacle where God's residence is located, where the general is staying, that's where all the other tents are supposed to focus, which is crazy, crazy horrible idea if you're worried about getting attacked, right? Like uh, imagine, imagine at the Super Bowl today, the Eagles' offensive line 
turns around and puts their backs to the Chiefs' defensive line and faces their quarterback because they're like, you're our guy. Like, that's, if you know nothing about football, sorry, Carl, uh, that's a bad idea, okay? It's a bad idea. You're going to lose, right? You need to face the enemy so they can't get past you, right? But the Israelites are supposed to face their tents towards their general because that's where their hope, that's, that's who's fighting their battles. He's their warrior God. Uh, we see this throughout the conquest narratives. God leads the people as a military uh, commander should. He leads them through the ark on the march into the promised land. He uh, requires spiritual preparation of them before battle. This is a holy war. When they go throughout Canaan and they cleanse it of uh, the Canaanites, uh, God tells them when to fight, how to fight, who to fight. Everything is directed by their commander. God is the warrior who is leading his people, which is really important because it shows us that, that the conquest narratives are not the equivalent of, uh, of like Muslim jihadism. That's not what's going on here. It's not like, uh, you know, Israel really wants this land and they're going to take it because guess what? Their God is bigger than yours. Uh, actually, their God is the one who's calling the shots. Their God is the one who, is, who even will go to war with his own people when they disobey him. So after Jericho, when they're, they're supposed to invade uh, Ai, or Ai, I never figured out how to say that one. It's two letters. And, I mean, come on. It's difficult to say. We'll call it Ai. Uh, but they're supposed to go there and invade it. And Achan sins. He disobeyed God. And so they lose the battle because God's saying, uh-uh, you fight the battle my way. You do not call the shots I do. Israel is the instrument through which God is bringing his judgment against the Amorites, the Canaanites who live in the land, which is what God told Abraham hundreds of years previously. So Genesis 15, verse, uh, verse what, 6, 16, Genesis 15, 16, uh, God says to Abraham, yeah, you're not going to go in the land yet because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is being patient and waiting for the sins of those people to rise up to him to an extent that he decides, okay, yeah, Joshua is going to come through town and we're going to bring judgment against them. So this is not Israel saying, we want to be the boss, we're going to conquer you guys. This is God using Israel as his instrument uh, for his judgment on the Amorites. But again, that's not the whole story. God not only battles the enemies of his people, we also see he goes to war with his own people. So uh, things, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, things didn't go well with Israel, understatement of the century, uh, right? They, uh, they disobeyed God constantly. They bit the hand that fed them. So God brought judgment against them, and God brought, judge, brought judgment through bringing war that resulted in exile. So nowhere in the Old Testament is the are the exile narratives presented as Assyria or Babylon or Persia or whoever else came through town uh, conquering Israel and taking their people away. It's always presented as God using them to judge his own disobedient people. So you see that uh, there in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 2. It says, The Lord, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy. All the, all the habitations of Jacob, that's Israel. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. The Lord has done that. You see it also in Isaiah chapter 10. There next in your notes. Woe to Assyria, 
the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, in Assyria's hands, their staff, their war weapon against Israel, is my God's fury. Against a godless nation, Israel, I send him, Assyria, and against the people, Israel, of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. It was not Assyria and its gods who conquered Israel. It was Israel's God who used Assyria to conquer Israel. But there's also a little twist in that last uh, passage I read in Isaiah chapter 10, which brings us to our next phase with the prophet's promise. This is phase three of God's uh, war-making and peacemaking on the earth. So the twist is that God will not only use Assyria to, uh, to bring judgment on his own people, but God will judge Assyria in their own turn for what they have done in bringing judgment on his own people. So look, uh, look at just a few verses after it, there in your notes, Isaiah 10, verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. God is absolutely and completely sovereign over every single step of this war. He's using Assyria to judge Israel, and then he judges Assyria for their pride in their conquest of Israel. God is completely sovereign. Uh, and this is a major theme, too, in the book of Daniel. Daniel's in exile. He's in Babylon, and in chapter 2, he has this vision of the kingdom of God destroying all other kingdoms. Uh, and, after, uh, sorry, and, and basically in that, God is saying, I will rise up and I will bring judgment. I will bring vengeance on those who have conquered and judged my people. I will ultimately bring peace to my people and war against their enemies. That's, that's one of the main hopes of the prophets. So here's what, here's what the history of Old Testament warfare shows us. It shows us that earthly physical warfare is a warning shot. When God judges on the earth, when he does these physical, visible wars that he wages against the enemies of his people, he is giving a warning shot of future final judgment to come. So, uh, my, it was either my first day of work or my second day of work here. I uh, challenged Carl to arm wrestling. It's like prison. You know, you got to beat up the biggest guy on the first day so that everyone knows not to mess with you, right? And that's how I viewed coming on staff here. That's a joke. It's okay. You don't have to laugh. Um, not to brag, but I destroyed him. He can, he can tell you about it. He's not, don't look at him right now, but he can tell you about it. I beat him. So what that told Carl, and he's going to deny this part. That's not important. What that told Carl when I beat him in arm wrestling is I could totally beat him up. He knows not to mess with me. And I mean, Tim and Jared, they also know not to mess with me because if I can beat Carl up, I can beat them up. It's not hard. I mean, come on, right? Look, I mean, easy peasy. Anyway, why does God, who is spirit, bother with physical, obvious, visible warfare? Because it tells those who are paying attention 
that he can and will bring ultimate spiritual vengeance, warfare against sin and evil everywhere. That ultimately, when you see that, you say, okay, so God is a warrior. He will bring wrath. He will bring judgment and vengeance against those who are the enemies of his people and even against the sins of his own people. And there is a grace in that because physical war, serious as it is, is nothing compared to spiritual war. Earthly destruction is nothing compared to eternal destruction. But for his people, God in the prophets also promises peace. He also promises peace. That's the other main focus. So he promises to fight the enemies, the oppressors of his people, but he will also bring peace. And we see that. We actually see peace and war start to really come together in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So look at this passage. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. Hear the warning in this text? When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, neither, it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's war language, judgment, vengeance. Verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So here we see war and peace come together in God's divine plan. Ultimately, when he brings vengeance, judgment, war against the enemies of his people, he will also bring this perfect, total, beautiful, amazing peace for his people. We also see that in uh, Isaiah 11. I won't read that passage. Uh, next page of your notes there for you. Uh, but really what that's showing us is that this, this coming peace that the prophets foretell uh, is this return to Eden. We see uh, lions and lambs lying down together. We see uh, the nursing child playing over the hole of the cobra, which as a parent sounds so stressful to me. Uh, but that is the image of perfect order and peace, of this beautiful uh, ordered creation where everything is at peace with one another. Uh, so uh, the prophets show us that there are these two massive events which are tied together. One, on the one hand, will be devastating destruction, and the other will be glorious peace. So in World War II uh, in Europe, war had to come through peace. Sorry, peace had to come through war. That didn't make sense. Peace had to come through war. We, the Allies had to go throughout uh, Europe, had to, had to liberate the concentration camps, had to defeat the Nazis in order for peace to flourish in the land. It led to peace, but it still required war. And that's, that's the image that we see here in the prophets. And ultimately, ultimately, the prophets will hang this hope for peace on one person, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we love this verse. You probably read it every Christmas. Uh, we see at the beginning, uh, or we, sorry, I said at the beginning that God is a God of both war and peace, and I actually think this verse, more than any verse in the entire Bible, is where those two themes come together in the most beautiful way. 
So you probably see it there. The, the peace bit is obvious, right? We see Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. But we often miss, I think, especially when we're reading this in Christmas, uh, we're probably not thinking about what does it mean when he says mighty God? What is mighty God? What, what is that? Does it just mean he's strong? What, what is the word mighty there? Well, actually, uh, the word mighty is related to, in Hebrew, the adjective for warrior. So as I might say someone is athletic, I'm saying they're an athlete. If I say someone is mighty, I'm saying they are a warrior. You can't do it in English. It doesn't quite work the same way. Uh, But it's the same word. It's saying this warrior God. That's what Jesus is called here. Wonderful counselor, you could say warrior God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So we see those two elements of uh, of Christ or of God's plan come together ultimately in Christ. And in the New Testament, we get to meet him. Jesus is Isaiah 9-6 incarnate. And we're going to look uh, briefly at the two aspects of his ministry. He came to bring war and to bring peace. So Jesus is the divine warrior. He's, he's very clear about that. Uh, this is not, though, uh, the kind of war his followers expected. So when Jesus comes, they're like, okay, great, the Messiah is here. You're going to kick out Rome, right? You're going to go, you're going to lead an army and you're going to get Rome out of here so we can have our own land. We don't have to worry about them anymore. You're going to be the guy who comes and fights that battle. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not, that's not at all what I came to do. Here we see the battleground shifts because Jesus did not come to fight the physical enemies of his people. He came to fight the spiritual enemies. Enemies. He came to fight sin, Satan, suffering, and evil everywhere. So he came to fight the spiritual powers and authorities. We could think about this like the battleground has shifted. No longer is the like chessboard down here really the focus. It's the two people up here. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they're having a fist fight now, right? It's the, the war in the air is now the focus. And that fight kicks off early with Jesus' temptation. His temptation is a battle with. Satan, he goes toe-to-toe with the enemy from the garden at the very beginning. And where does he do it? Where is he doing his temptation? In the wilderness, where Israel was a battle or was an army ready for battle on the march. That's where Jesus went to go do battle with Satan. And right after the temptation narrative in Matthew chapter 4, Uh, Matthew actually quotes Isaiah 9 and says, this is that guy. This is that guy I was telling you about. This is the the mighty God, Prince of Peace. We see it in Jesus' ministry. Throughout his ministry, he's he's going to war. He's assaulting sin, evil, and suffering. And so the battle rages, again, not as a physical war between Jesus and the enemies of Israel, but against their true oppressors. He goes around and he's healing. He's healing. He's kicking out sickness. He's he's preaching righteousness. He's calling people to repentance and to forsake their sin. And he's casting out demons. That's a a unique feature, I think, not only in uh, compared to our experience. I talked about this a few months ago in a sermon. Um, Not only the the frequency of, of the demonic in the gospel narratives is not only kind of different than our experience, our how frequently we seem to encounter the demonic. Uh, but it's also different than even in the book of Acts. Uh, and I've, I've said this before, but I think what's going on here is it's like at the end of, uh, towards the end of a board game when you're playing with your friends 
and you realize, man, I am not going to win. I'm done. I'm just going to do, I'm just going to throw the kitchen sink at them. I don't know. I have no shot at winning anymore, so I'm just going to behave erratically and do something dumb and just attack like crazy. Uh, that is what the demons are doing when Jesus shows up because they know his ministry is the beginning of their end. Things are coming to a head for them. The battle is being fought now directly against them, and so they just, they're just jumping out of you know, every street corner trying to get him. We see Jesus' role as a divine warrior when he says in Matthew 10, I don't think I have this, yeah, I don't have this in your notes, that's all right, uh, where he says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to bring a sword. And that, as he unpacks that imagery there, he's saying, he's saying that I'm actually going to divide families, that parents and children, sisters and brothers will be divided because sides are being taken for this battle. Sides are being determined now. Why? Because the spiritual battle Jesus has come to fight resides at the level of the human heart. It's not nation versus nation. It is heart versus heart. And there will be some who come and stand beside Jesus, and there will be some who stand on the opposite side of the battle. And then ultimately it culminates at the cross and resurrection of Christ. This is his defeat of sin and the disarming of the devil, uh, but it is also the shocking reversal of the whole war and peace theme across the entire Bible, because when Jesus goes to his ultimate battle, the cross, he loses. He dies, and in that way, he wins. He defeats ultimate uh, sin and death and evil because he was willing to take the seeming defeat on himself. And that was his victory over Satan and his demons. So we see that in Colossians chapter 2. So verse 13, I have it in your notes. It says, and you, Paul's writing the church in Colossae, Colossae, yeah, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses. We see the spiritual element there. This is the war he came to fight. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what did that do? Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's New Testament language for the demonic rulers of the world. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus' cross was the ultimate defeat of Satan and evil. And so, uh, he is the divine warrior, and he wins. But he's not only that, he's also the prince of peace. Remember, war is, is not central to God's character like peace is. God wars for peace. So peace is Jesus' final purpose. I won't read, uh, just for the sake of time, I won't read all the verses I have here, but at his birth, the angels say, peace on earth. In his ministry, he's, he's going around and he's, he's reconciling all things to himself. And that's what he does ultimately through his death on the cross. Throughout his ministry, it's like this, this peace is exuding throughout, or away from Jesus. So he's, he's bringing this kind of Edenic, this peace of Eden Everywhere he goes. So people encounter him and they're healed. 
They're restored. Their, their bodies are ordered rightly how they're supposed to work. He casts out demons, and, and he, we see people who are made in the image of God functioning as they were supposed to from the beginning in perfect peace. Jesus is like a, uh, some of you are going to hate this illustration. That's okay. Uh, a, a, like a nuclear bomb, but a good one. Like, like so, so imagine a bomb that, you know, like, I'm not a nuclear physicist. That's why you guys aren't going to like this. The, the science people in the room, just turn your ears off for a second. It's okay. Uh, it's like, I'm, I'm assuming they, they exude, they kind of leak radiation, right? So you get too close, you hang around the nuke too long, and you, you know, you get a little deformed. You become like a superhero or something. Uh, Jesus is like a good one. Right where he's leaking out Eden, he's leaking out this peace and this order and this beauty and this this structure that God had originally designed for His creation. And in Colossians, ultimately, what does it say? He did. He made peace by the blood of His cross. So you could think of His death as where the button is pushed for the bomb to explode. This is where He makes peace with His people. It's where the promise made to Noah, his bow in the sky, God says, I'll take the blow before I bring total judgment again. That's where God takes the blow himself. And Jesus comes in his resurrection. He speaks peace to his people. He has purchased peace for them. And so that leads us naturally into phase five. We'll have to move quickly here. The church age where we see grace bought peace and grace bought War. So again, I know the nuclear physicists in the building hate my atomic bomb, but it's good illustration. Uh, we could think about it like this. The church age is where we live between the, the button being pushed for detonation and the explosion of peace going across the whole world. So our ministry, as we go out across the world, is a ministry of bringing God's peace to people who were his enemies. That's what we're called to. We're called to a ministry of peace. The gospel in Ephesians 6 is called the gospel of peace. Peace characterizes our work. 2 Corinthians 5, we have a message of reconciliation, a ministry of reconciliation. That's peace language. Ultimately, what we are about as Christ's church is bringing his peace to the people who don't have it. We invite people to be reconciled to the God who they were at war with and know peace with him. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, that the church not only has a message of peace, but we exist at peace with one another. So Ephesians uh, 2, uh, I've got to turn my page here. Ephesians 2, it says, he himself, I, just, I had to put this in because he uses the word peace like 50 times. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the hostility between different people. He's killing it. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Christ's peace unites Christians who should be at war with one another. We should be at war, and yet Christ's peace makes us one, whether it's Jew or Gentile or Californian or Texan or homeschooler or public schooler or you know, MAGA, 
hat-wearing person to never-Trumper to anti-vax to quadruple-vax, people who should be at war with each other in our world, the church is where they are at peace because all those different, all those disagreements are ultimately relativized because they are at peace with their God and so with each other. The peace Christ has purchased for us and commanded of us shows us how foolish our little squabbles really are. That's the undoing of the interpersonal warfare that Cain and Abel and Lamech showed us. The church are the people of peace, but we are also people of war. Some of the most common uh, metaphors in the New Testament to describe Christians are soldiers. We are called soldiers again and again and again and again. Uh, We have a mission. We have a captain. We have an enemy. We are soldiers at war. One of the most obvious examples is Ephesians 6. Uh, For the sake of time, I won't read it. It's the armor of God passage. The clear uh, point here is that life is war. We are at war, but we need to understand the nature of that war because it's not flesh and blood. It's the principalities and the powers, the demonic, the evil, sin that we are at war with. So our weapons are not physical, they are spiritual. Prayer, truth, righteousness, and faith. We do not take up the sword for this cause because we're not fighting a physical war. When I was a young Christian, Make War by Tadashi was one of my favorite songs. I had to put the lyrics in there for you for the sake of time. I'm not going to read them for you, but they are so good, and you should listen to that song because it's amazing. Anyway, Uh, The Christian life is a battle. It is a battle. And one day, one day, that battle will end. That's That's phase number six, the last day. Jesus will win the final battle over both human and spiritual enemies. I know it's a long passage, but we're going to read it because it is glorious. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is Jesus showing up for his return. This is what he looks like. He's making war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written. No one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come. Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, of horses and their riders, of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, the enemies of God's people. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Oh, and here's the battle. Oh, wait, no, it's over. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is an intense, crazy, awesome, epic uh, description of Jesus at his return. And I won't belabor the point. Perfect peace 
and perfect justice come together. Perfect war and perfect peace are fulfilled. But notice, Jesus shows up with blood already on him. He shows up to this epic final battle already bloodied because this is the ultimate final battle, but the decisive battle was already won. Uh, On on D-Day, June 6, 1944, the Allies took the beaches of Normandy, and we knew we were going to win the war. It was the decisive victory. But the war wasn't over until VE Day, uh, May 8, 1945, Victory in Europe Day. So there's this time in between. In the same way, the cross was the decisive defeat of evil, but Jesus' return will be its final defeat. And that will usher in perfect peace, where uh, in the New Jerusalem, the gates are never shut. Why would you never shut your gates? Because there's no enemies to keep out. No, you close the gates so they have to batter them down to get to you. In the new heavens and new earth, this perfect Eden paradise, we open the gates always because we're not worried. There's no enemies here. All right, I have already gone way too long, so we're not going to have time for questions, but I do want to briefly apply this to us. I think I've belabored the point to exhaustion. God is both a warrior and a peacemaker, but what do we do about that? Calvin summarizes our knowledge in two ways. He says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So kind of in light of that, we're going to ask these two questions. Who is your God and who are you? Is your God a warrior? Is your God a peacemaker? Or is he both? Now, I know people who love this idea, this warrior God, you know, like they're talking about how Jesus flipped tables, like that's the only thing he ever did, which is like, it's literally like one passage in the Bible. Jesus did not only flip tables. Um, and like we can, we can, we love this picture of a warrior God. It's true. It's half the picture. That's not your whole God. That's not the whole beauty of God. I also know people who are more on the, you know, the hippie side of things. God is all about peace, baby. That's also true, but it's also half the picture. So which dimension of God's character are you more comfortable with? An error on either side will lead to errors everywhere else. God is both a warrior and a peacemaker, and it is good news. Uh, I mentioned, or I actually didn't mention this, but uh, we have a tendency to over-spiritualize passages in the Old Testament, like where David prays, God, bring vengeance on my enemies. And we say, God, you know, destroy my sin. My sin is my enemy. Bring vengeance on it. And that's that's true. I mean, sin is your ultimate, your main, your primary enemy. But God also promises to bring judgment on the physical enemies of his people too. Now, I realize that can feel uncomfortable. Uh, Let me explain why that's really good news. Uh, I knew a pastor uh, who uh, counseled a woman who had been uh, just horribly abused in her life. Uh, By uh, God's grace, she had experienced a lot of healing, Uh, but uh, part of the difficulty for her was uh, they never caught the guys who had abused her. They never never, uh, got arrested or anything like that, and so she she was afraid and and just felt this horrible uh, anxiety. Uh, And the pastor encouraged her to find a passage from Scripture 
that she could memorize and reflect on when she felt that fear or she felt angry uh, and to, to, to repeat it to herself. And she came back a week later and said, I found the passage. I know exactly what uh, passage from Scripture I want uh, to, to bring to mind when I have those thoughts. And he said, okay, what is it? And she said, it's that one at the end of Revelation where Jesus shows up and destroys all of the enemies of his people with perfect wrath and vengeance. Because she says it, it, she said it means he, they don't get away with it. The men who did that to me don't get away with it. There will be perfect justice because God is a warrior. Brothers and sisters, God never ever says vengeance is wrong. God says vengeance is mine. He will bring perfect war against those who deserve it. But there's more good news. God is also a peacemaker. He's incredibly long-suffering. He is incredibly long-suffering. How many times did Israel sin and rebel before he brought exile? How many hints of peace did he give throughout the whole Old Testament? When he, he should have, he could have just destroyed them in perfect wrath and been perfectly justified in doing it. How, many, how much peace did he give? How long did he wait? How many sins did he overlook before sending his son to pay for sin? That's our God. He is the initiator of peace. So remember, brothers and sisters, he's a warrior and he is a peacemaker. We must hold those two together. And then to close our time, I just want to ask, who are you? Who are you? On the one hand, Christian, the Christian life is a life of war. Do you have a wartime mentality? There was a ship in the 20th century, the RMS Queen Mary, which had two purposes in its lifetime. Uh, it, for, during World War II, uh, yeah, World War II, it was used as a troop and weapons transport, uh, and after the war, it functioned as a cruise ship. And if you look at pictures of uh, the RMS Queen Mary, there couldn't be more different during these two phases of its life. There are times it's you know, stripped bare, and there's machine guns mounted on the side, and there's times there's a fancy ballroom and a swimming pool. And my question is, which ship does your life look like? Are you geared up for battle? And I'm not talking concealed carry. I know we're in Texas. Are you geared up for battle, or does your life look like a cruise ship? Just ease. Just coasting along, enjoying the ride. There's an old hymn that asks the question, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize? and sail through bloody seas? It's an important question to ask yourself. Christian life is a war, but we also are called to make peace. Season your words, brothers and sisters. Season your words with the salt of the peace of the gospel. Don't be fighting fights that don't need to be fought. We are engaged in a mission, a ministry of peace with the gospel of peace on our lips. So don't engage yourself in battles that have nothing to do with the gospel we are called to proclaim as Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I have one book recommendation for you here by Tremper Longman. Uh, he is very, very good. Uh, if, if you want uh, other recommendations, uh, talk to me. I, can, I just wanted to put that one on there for sure. Let me pray. Uh, we are over time, uh, and then we will have until 1030 for the start of the service. Let's pray. God, I pray you would sharpen us. You would keep us from 
viewing only half of who you are. God, help keep us from, from cutting you down the middle and thinking you are only this angry peacemaker, or, or sorry, angry warrior, or this, you know, yeah, this simple-minded peacemaker. God, you are neither. You are a righteous warrior, and you are a loving peacemaker. I pray in light of that we would live our lives as both a war that requires battle on our part, but also makes peace in our environment. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.